1: He's part of the Microbiome Research Initiative at the Fred Hutch uh, Cancer Center. Um, we're going to be talking about the virome. It's a part of the microbiome, but it's the viral component of the microbiome. There's, you know, there's bacteria, there's viruses, there's fungi, yeast, and God knows what else in there inside of people. But uh, there's a lot, so the virome is not often talked about. So Sam, thanks for coming.
2: Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about you know, your research. What does it involve?
2: Absolutely. So I'm a microbiologist by training. And that means that, you know, when I was going through graduate school, I started out by focusing on these different microbes that live on the human body. Um, there's, you know, many different types of microbes living on all of our different body surfaces, and they're really important for our health. And I started out by, by really looking at individual microbes and, and growing them uh, in the lab in a Petri dish and that sort of thing. And well, the, the real question at hand at, at that time and still today is, you know, how do the microbes on us impact our health? How, how is humans health influenced by the microbes that that live on us? Uh, and mm-hmm. so this is this is what we think of as microbiome science. And so going from studying a single bacterium that might be able to be grown on a Petri dish to the hundreds or, or thousands of different types of bacteria that might be found on a person and that might be influencing their health in some way.
1: The microbes trade resources and one may metabolize one thing and that becomes feedstock for another and back and forth again and they all interact
2: absolutely it's a complex system whenever we learn something new about what these microbes are doing uh, we find that there's these additional layers of complexity did we even know that bacteria could build a giant needle which they use to inject their neighbors like a harpoon and kill them when they're competing for resources no, this is something that we only discovered in the last you know, decade or so. Uh, there's all these types of novelty of the bacterial world that are really fascinating. And in my graduate research, I started focusing on the viruses that infect the bacteria that live uh, on the human body. And so even one step uh, in, uh, over and above that. And actually, I did that work with Dr. Uh, Rick Bushman, who I saw had a recent uh, podcast episode here.
1: Yeah, yeah, he was great
2: to talk to. So I'm excited to talk
1: to you, too. Um, so the viruses that affect bacteria, they call them phages, I guess, or bacteriophages. One thing I learned recently is I thought it was one virus, one phage, but I guess many different types of phages can affect one bacteria?
2: That's right. Uh, there, are, there are many more different types of phages than there are bacteria, and this is partially because bacteria are constantly evolving to become resistant to phage. And then those phage uh, evolve to be able to infect those resistant bacteria. And so the back and forth, the arms race between bacteria and viruses is something which can uh, drive the creation of new species, which is really interesting from an evolutionary standpoint.
1: Well, what if it's not just, you know, predator prey? What if the bacteria, a given bacteria's microbiome is its virome? And what if some mm. of the viruses are helpful to it and provide tools or resources, you know, instead of it having to use a plasmid to talk to other bacteria or to get an antibiotic resistance gene, maybe the, the viruses do that for it. Then other ones prey on it. You know, may, again, maybe some help, some hurt. Maybe it's a that's, whole community of, of
2: things. That's, I think that's, that's absolutely the right, the right direction to be going in with this uh, with this system. When we think about bacteria and viruses, you know, we start out by thinking about predator and prey because there's some reality there. Viruses are able to infect and kill bacteria. Uh, so bacteria are, pre- are prey to those, those viruses. But then, as, as we find with all things in biology, as we learn more, we find that there's many more different varieties of that relationship. So some viruses, in fact, um, are found within the genome of their host and are able to emerge, be born from the bacteria without really killing them. And that's a different type of life cycle for a virus. It's still a virus, but it doesn't have that predator-prey relationship. And uh, this is actually one of the examples that provides a really interesting connection even to human health. Um, there was a, a recent discovery by the Bolicky lab where they found that a bacteria that causes inflammation in the context of wounds, you know, when you have like a cut on your skin, they found that there's this one bacteria that can cause an even worse infection of humans if it has its own virus, because the va- bacterial virus ends up being recognized by the human immune. And so there's there's uh, many different layers always going on with any of these systems.
1: Yeah, I heard the example they say it's, it's turtles all the way down. I guess that <laughs> means that, um, you know, it, you, it makes you wonder. I mean, I don't know if this is possible. But what if a virus itself or a phage itself had its own, you know, microbiome? I don't know what it would be. Maybe other viruses or prions or you know, I guess it can't keep going forever, but. It's, it's the, gone several levels at least.
2: The, the one additional level that people have described is something that we call a satellite phage. And the, I mean, the, the basic idea of a virus is, is, is nothing, you know, particularly um, insightful or revolutionary. A virus really is just a piece of genetic material that encodes enough information to let it spe- spread between cells in this free floating viral particle. And so a, a satellite virus is a piece of DNA that encodes enough information to put itself inside the viral coding of another virus. And so that's, that's definitely the, the next area where you have these layers and layers upon them. Even something like that can be important for human health. If you think about cholera, we all know about cholera. It's an extremely important human disease. Uh, diarrheal diseases are, are one of the most uh, important um, you know targets for public health in the world today. And cholera is caused by a toxin, which is encoded by a, a set of mobile elements, which include a satellite phage uh, that are integrated into their host. And they, so there's a virus that's going around carrying the gene that causes the disease of cholera.
1: Huh. So cholera happens when, I guess, the Vibrio cholerae are infected by a certain phage that carries a gene that what endogenizes into that, that bacteria and now makes it virulent to people?
2: That's, that's right. The, the, the Vibrio becomes Vibrio cholera when it is infected with a phage that encodes this cholera toxin. So the, the cholera toxin is, in, is carried on the phage genome, and it's able to insert itself into the genome because of other accessory satellite elements that are, that are present there. And that was work from the, um, sure. yeah, Matt, Matt Waldor and um, John McElwanis at Harvard. John McElwanis is actually one of my mentors during my training. And, and this really, I think, gets to the interesting thing about viruses is if you just think about viruses within the in the world in general, you could say, well, they, they could do anything. You know, there's so many of them there there's so many different bacteria. The world of possibilities is immense. And and that's why I really like working at a translational research center like Fred Hutch, because at the end of the day, what, what we really care about is Discoveries that end up having an impact on human health, and, and partially as a scientist, this is appealing because we know we only know that we really understand a system when we're able to manipulate it, and designing a good therapeutic or a good diagnostic you know demonstrates that we understand the biology, but also it helps us prioritize what do we choose to study? you know what do we choose to spend our time on? And when I think about the microbiome and I think about the viruses in the microbiome, um, I'm really interested. In trying to understand which parts of those biology end up having an impact on human health, I think that's a very clarifying question.
0: So, what are you working
1: on right now? What's your research looking at?
2: So, I have a, I'm, I'm a, a very, um, um, I'm very lucky in my position at Fred Hutch because I exist within this microbiome research initiative. So, this was a commitment by the center, which said, you know, we we would really like to enhance and support and, you know, and, and drive innovation in microbiome research, because it appears that there, there are all these connections between the microbiome and human health, for example, with the, the effectiveness of certain cancer treatments seem to be related to what's in the microbiome. Uh, there are many different uh, disorders, recovery from graft-versus-host disease. There's a lot of different elements of human health that, that might relate to the microbiome, and, you know, as a center, we'd like to you know, do a better job. We'd like to, to support this, this area of science. And so in my work, personally, I'm a computational biologist. I spend all of my time looking at the computer. And so my work really focuses on how do we measure what's in the microbiome, given that most of it has never been cultured, has never been grown, uh, and that we don't really know what a lot of the different organisms are doing. And so the, the work that I focus on is is collaborating with this amazing different um, research laboratories that some might be infectious disease physicians, some of them might be basic researchers, some of them might be uh, oncologists, uh, and, and working with them to to help understand their data that they're generating, connecting the microbiome to human health.
1: Well, a lot of bacteria, I guess, cannot be cultured in a petri dish, right? They, you can't. Uh, that's what I've heard. You know that make up our microbiome. Like, for instance, you know, with that question, why, why do you think that is? What's stopping us from being able to culture all the bacteria?
2: I think, I think there, are, there are two elements of this. One is, you know, what is the technology that we use to grow bacteria? And I think there's a, there's a lot of different elements of that. You know, what are the right set of nutrients? What are the right signals? You know, for example, does this bacteria need to be in an oxygen-free environment? Does it, can it tolerate a very small amount of oxygen? Uh, These are might seem like, you know, very minor questions, but they can have a a big impact on whether or not one particular bacterium actually grows. And I think that's maybe the technical answer. I think there's a larger answer here, though, which is how many bacteria are there out there in the world? How many of them could we possibly grow in the lab? And and the answer is there are there are many. There are many, many different bacteria out there in the world. And that's not only at the level of an organism that would give a name to you know, for example, E. coli uh, or Bacteroides fragilis. Uh, But also there's an amazing amount of diversity inside those species. So if you were to take one particular isolate, if you were to grow one example of Bacteroides fragilis, we grew one from me and we grew one from you, they would be different from each other. There might only be a handful of genes that would be different, but there might also be hundreds of genes that are different. And so when when you find a new example of a bacterium, you find that there's something, there's always something new to discover about what that bacteria might be able to do. And I think that's the larger challenge of using culture-based methods or trying to grow bacteria as a method of studying them, as opposed to uh, studying them without growing them, which is what I spend my time on.
1: Yeah, if you have um, E. coli in you, I mean, how many different kinds of E. coli do you have? Can, I don't know if there's a name for it. You know, if they have what are two genes that are different? Is it a new strain? Is it not a new strain? And then, you know, maybe it's a mistake to just say, oh, there's a, there's a lot of diversity in this microbiome. It's meaningless. Maybe we have to look at <laughs> yeah, but the metabolomics of it, the function of the bacteria. What are they doing in this particular context, you know, in your colon uh, with this mix of bacteria? Like, what, How do you figure this out?
2: So the, the first question is a bit of a hard one to give a definitive answer to. How many different strains, how many different types, you know, how many different varieties, uh, does each person have? And it can be hard to tell because the numbers are so large. You know, if you, if you're thinking about hundreds of millions of cells in a single person, we're, we're not going to be able to check every one of those. But there has been some, I think some really careful work done by a couple of different groups, including um, I believe Sean Gibbons here in, in Seattle. And I think that the best analysis I've seen indicates that for most species, people tend to have a small number of strains, You know, maybe one or two strains, maybe something like five strains for, for some bacteria, but that each person has relatively limited numbers and that these are gonna change over time. They might evolve some and they might also be replaced So the strain of E. coli that I have is going to stick around in me for a while, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe years. And at some point, it might get replaced by a different strain that comes in from outside or arises through some evolutionary process, and then it sort of takes over. And that this is a constant process. There's this periods of stability and change where you have relatively small numbers of strains of each species that are each trying to maintain themselves in their ecological niche. So...
1: What would be a better approach? You know, right now, I know there's, you know, 16S sequencing, there's shotgun sequencing, but it doesn't seem like we're able to tie genetic sequence or genes to function. I mean, are there any radical or different approaches people are looking at to understand what's going on in, you know, inside of us or inside of some given model?
2: Well, well this is where I, I have to sort of give full disclosure. I've been sort of leading us down this path because this is the area that I've been focusing on. And so I've been working on this uh, with my collaborators in a way which... I'm hoping will drive a bit more, more insight and, and understanding from the data. And, and I think that the one way to approach this, so you mentioned metabolomics, you mentioned functional analysis. I think those are interesting areas that people are working on. Another is to try to take a close look at what we mean when we talk about strain differences. So for example, we, we could start the process and say, I have one strain of E. coli and you have one strain of E. coli and they're different. Therefore, we understand nothing because they are different. The, the way that I tend to think about it is strains of bacteria can be more or less similar to each other. And one way in which they might be more similar to each other is in which genes they encode. And so we could go through and say one particular strain of E. coli may contain uh, you know, 2,000 out of a possible 10,000 genes. Your strain has one set of 2,000 genes my strain has a different set of 2000 genes. If we look at what genes are found, my hope is that that will help us understand how those functions might relate to the health of the people that hold those strains. So this is gene level analysis that I've actually been spending a lot of my time on on recently for microbiome research.
1: When you know a particular sequence though, how do you know what that sequence does? How do you know how it's expressed?
2: It's It's pretty rare. I'd say that when you look at a a sequence, a sequence from the genomes of bacteria that live in the gut, you can tell what the amino acids are that are encoded. I'd say that our algorithms are pretty good at doing that. And then when you go and check it against the database and say, what other sequences have I seen like this? What other genes where I know what the function is? It's actually kind of a low rate. You might only get half of the time, uh, had any sort of name that you could give to a gene. When you do have a name for a gene, you might have a general idea of what it does. It might be a histidine kinase, but there are many different things that those enzymes could do, and it could, and, and it could be that there's some biological novelty there. And so I think that the annotation problem, having some idea of what the function is of the things that we're measuring, uh, is, is definitely a hard one, and, and that's one thing that the, the field struggles with.
1: So even if <laughs> even if you know what a sequence is. And if you know some of what that that sequence does or produces, you know, the proteins it encodes, et cetera, enzymes, there's still a tremendous amount of variation, again, depending on context, what Mm -hmm. it could do.
2: And it would take us until the end of, you know, the heat depth of the universe to try to figure out the function of every gene. We could just start cataloging all the genes and saying, you know, here's a set of six million genes. Let's go through and try to find the function of each one and try to clone it and express it and do the structure and do all these things. And each one would take, you know, years of effort. And at the end of the day, you know, we could spend our whole lives doing this. And we don't know that the genes that we've been characterizing are the ones that really matter. And I think this is where the microbiome science that's emerged over the last decade really turns the problem on its head and asks, which of these things are important for human health? Let's start with that. Let's prioritize the list of genes out there in the world and say, yes, we don't. We have no idea what this gene does, but we know that if we see this gene in someone's gut, they're at more risk for developing disease X. That gives us a good reason to say, let's start by, let's start by studying this gene. That's a good one to start with as opposed to picking randomly. Okay, that's, that's true. Hmm. Is there a name
1: for the translation of a given sequence to a given function? I mean, does that even have a name?
2: This is, this is an area that people work on. Um, I tend to call it functional annotation. Um, the idea of function, I think is something that we give names like you know, enzyme or butyrate producing, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the, the, the language of function. Um, and sometimes this, these can be things that are, are derived based on homology or similarity to uh, other genes that are known. Um, and and that's, that's something that, that people are, are working on quite a lot. There's some interesting new work coming out where, where people are trying to use machine learning algorithms or artificial intelligence to uh, To predict the structure of proteins that have never been crystallized before where no one's ever found it before. And, and there's some developments like that, that I think uh, Might prove to have some really interesting develops in the functional annotation field over the next few years.
1: I mean, even within viruses, is it any easier to figure out what the, uh, you know, the sequence that a virus will do? I've heard, you know, there's all these sequences we've never seen before. We have no clue what they do. There's conserved regions, there's non-conserved.
2: Yeah, the the domain of unknown function is is, is probably the the, the best characterized one or the, the one that we find the most often. Viruses have some hallmarks. There are some characteristics of viruses that we see again and again. And those tend to be relatively stable landmarks. A virus has to have, uh, or many viruses have capsids. They have proteins that coat them and protect them from the environment. They they often have tail fibers. So this means they have um, long, flexible proteins, which are able to reach out like the arms of an octopus and uh, reach out and touch and grab onto their host that they want to infect. Um, and they also have to have some way of getting their genome into the cell that they infect. And these are usually um, spike protein or, or tail sheath proteins. So there's some, there's some hallmarks that characterize the major families of viruses that we know about. And those can be recognized even if they are extremely distantly related to any virus that we've ever grown before. The, the, the predicted structure uh, tends to be relatively conserved. And then on top of that, you have all these genes where we have no idea what they do. And um, there's a lot of room for discovery there.
1: Hmm. So what are some of the insights or some important questions that you think are going to be answered in the near future because of your work or because of others' work that's, uh, you know, ancillary to yours?
2: This is, this is something I, I think about. This is something that I, I, I get asked a fair amount. You know, where are the places where microbiome science might have the biggest impact? Uh, in, in the coming years? You know, what, what are the first big things that we will see? And I think it's good to focus on this because there's an immense world of possibilities, but some of those have been carried further than others. Some of those we know a lot more about than others. One that I'm particularly interested in, uh, partially because I work at a cancer research center, is the way that the microbiome influences the treatment of cancer. And when I was, you know, when I was going through graduate school, you know, maybe 10 years ago or or so. If you had told me that the microbiome influences cancer, I would have been extremely skeptical. Um, And my mind started to be changed about uh, four years ago or so, as I started to see uh, papers starting to be published, where it seemed that there was some effect of what microbes are in the gut to whether or not um, a particular uh, immune-based drug would be able to treat cancer. And, and then it all started to come together. This connection of the immune system to the microbiome is something that I think is gonna be one of the biggest areas of discovery um, within, you know, within our lifetimes. And, and this is because our immune system is naturally oriented towards recognizing what's in the gut. This is a major part of human development. If we grow up without a microbiome, we do not develop the immune system that is as robust as the, that we have naturally. And so the immune system is always sampling and influenced by what's in the gut. And so the idea that the immune system then would uh, be poised to respond to something like cancer or cancer treatment differently uh, is something that is, is seeming increasingly plausible as we start to gather more data, we as a community.
1: Well, do you think the immune system comes just from the perception or point of view or abilities of our somatic cells? Or do you think it's a collaborative, informed effort from our microbiome as well?
2: I think that it's probably best not to, to try to think about any sort of collaboration of microbes with, with humans. The evolutionary timescales are so different that uh, I think that we can, we can think about microbes as doing their own thing in their own self-interest. And, and we're also doing our own thing in our own self-interest all the time. But there is certainly a, a tolerance that has developed where our immune system knows that certain microbes that do certain things um, are perfectly safe to be tolerated. And I think it's that that establishment, that signaling of immune tolerance as opposed to inflammation that ends up having a a large effect. If we're just sort of to boil this down to the big concepts. when you get uh, an infection in the gut, your immune system has to change from saying, yes, there are all these microbes in my gut and I'm going to tolerate them. It has to switch its program and say, oh no, now there is a dangerous microbe in my gut like if you get food poisoning, you get, you know, shigella or something like that, then it has to uh, change the way it responds in this physical environment. Um, and, and I think that that's something that is, is always going on, this constant interaction uh, between the immune system and the microbiome.
1: Do you think that, uh, I mean, the virome and the microbiome, I mean, are they, I guess the is are major players or perhaps not. They're more major players with the bacterial part of our, microbiome or with our human cells, uh, same thing with fungi and other creatures that are in there.
2: Yeah. I think that is, as, as we start to learn more, it's good to, um, good to shy away from these, these claims of knowledge. when We're actually maybe just haven't found it yet. You know, if you asked me if a bacterial virus would influence the infection of a human, um, you know, before two years ago, I would have said, Oh no, probably not. I don't think you're really going to find that with the virus, if the phage itself is, um, is changing the way a bacteria is able to, to cause disease. Uh, and then we found this example, or you know, the Bolicki lab found this example in Pseudomonas um, of a Pseudomonas bacteriophage recognized by the human immune system, which then makes the Pseudomonas able to infect uh, more readily. And until that happened, I never really would have guessed that it would have been possible, but it does seem to be possible. And so we need to be ready with an open mind to change our expectations about what the world discovery will bring.
1: But if you're supposed to have an open mind, why would you shy away from, I guess, what some people would say anthropomorphic language? It's, you know, if, if we keep saying, no, 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 it's just all mechanical and you know, nothing is, has, uh, has thought or action or anything, and then we keep finding that there's more than we suspected, why mm-hmm. not take the opposite perspective? What's wrong
2: with that? So when we, when we try to open our mind, um, one way is to, is to open our mind to sort of the way that the human brain naturally works, where we look for patterns, we try to superimpose the patterns we've learned other places in life, you know, the pattern of how humans behave is a useful one. And we understand that as human. And so we can superimpose that on bacteria or on viruses and say, what if this virus were acting like a human? What would it do then? And sometimes we can discover something, but we have this other approach for having an open mind now, which is following the data. Instead of starting out with a clear presupposition of how this system works, we can start out by just letting the data tell us. And that's really what this amazing world of big data analysis that we live in now lets us do. Instead of saying, I think that there are 20 different pathogens. I'm going to look for those 20 pathogens in the gut and find which one of those are associated with cancer. That is presupposing that there are only 20 different things that are known to be bad, the pathobiont idea. Instead, you could just collect all the data and say, I'm gonna measure all the microbes. I'm going to find which ones are associated with disease. And I'm gonna let the data tell me what the biological mechanism might be uh, to me, that is the most exciting way to do microbiome research right now.
1: Great. Hmm, okay, that makes sense. Well, very good. What, um, what do you think is in store for the next few years, You know, two, three, five years uh, in terms of your research and you know, the microbiome in general? Any breakthroughs that you sense are, are close?
2: Well, I'm, I'm rather encouraged by some of the – not, not my, my own research, but I'll just say that um, some of the work that's bringing microbiome-based therapeutics closer to the clinic – is something that I find to be um, extremely exciting. I think that we know a lot more about the microbiome now than we did 10 years ago uh, or 20 years ago. And at some point we have to be able to, you know, sort of demonstrate this as a field. So there's, um, there's, there's one sort of biotech company I can think of that's moving forward with developing cocktails of bacteria, which are observed to have an effect on uh, human health, so treatment of, for example, C. diff infection, uh, or even for this immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, immunotherapeutics for cancer. The idea of having a microbiome-based therapeutic is something that I think would, would really be transformational um, for the field and also have a meaningful impact on human health. And I think that there are a couple of leaders that are showing that this could be possible. And I'm, I'm very excited at the possibility of a place like Fred Hatch Cancer Research Center be at existing at the interface between basic research and translational research and cancer care, I'm very excited at the possibility of the findings that are coming from this, you know, really exciting group of scientists uh, being turned into something that is an actual therapeutic used in the clinic.
1: Well, very good. Sam, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work at Fred Hutch and to start, you know, to start learning about what's happening in terms of human health and the microbiome?
2: Absolutely. Um, we, have a, we have a page for the Microbiome Research Initiative at Fred Hutch, and I think there, there are some good links there. Um, I also maintain a, a blog personally, uh, so my, my last name, M-I-N-O-T dot bio, B-I-O. I, I regret that's not been uh, updated uh, terribly much recently, but I hope to update it more in the future. Um, and um, yeah, hopefully there's, there's more things I can also pass along.
1: Okay, well, very good. Well, Sam, thanks for coming on. It's been a good talk. And uh, I always feel like the people I talk to have like so much work to do. It's insane. So I feel like that uh, as well. There's, there's way too much to figure out. So,
2: so good luck, and I'm glad you're on the path. Thank you. It's, it's a busy time, but it's always good to, to take a minute and uh, get to talk about science with the larger world. So I appreciate you giving me the opportunity.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.